Amen. So, Ezra is a very interesting book, as you've realized. Um, one of the things that grieves me is how much the book of Ezra is overlooked and ignored. Uh, rarely will you hear a sermon uh, out of the book of Ezra, and, and almost never will you, uh, you know, have someone teach through the book of Ezra. I don't really understand why it's such an amazing and practical gift, but it is unique, and it does, uh, you know, it does take, uh, like anything else, it takes a little bit of uh, time and and effort and prayer. And one of the interesting things is, is that you've been studying the book of Ezra, and the you haven't even encountered the name Ezra. So you're studying the book, you're like, well, why is this book called Ezra? Because it's, it's not even, we haven't even met him yet. And so now we're in chapter 7, and we're going to be introduced to Ezra and, and start seeing the things not just that are happening, but in, with him in particular. I want you to think about how, uh, you know, we live in a day and age where everyone is uh, consumed with celebrity and you know we're always clamoring to uh you know we're, we're what are they doing and pictures of them doing this or that or and there's whole giant industries around uh people just wanting to know uh, about the lives of celebrities and they're always on some kind of talk show or some being interviewed by somebody and oftentimes they'll be asked a question like, well, what, to what do you attribute your success, whether you're, uh, you know, a movie star or you're a sports star or whatever the case may be? Um, and you get all these varying answers, you know, things like, well, I attribute it to my hard work and dedication to my craft, or I attribute it to uh, the way I was raised by my parents, or uh, the fact that I refuse to never take no for an answer, or you know, a lot of times you, you hear people say things like, it's due to my uh, unyielding belief in myself. That's just kind of a scary one. And things of that nature. Now, if we were to interview Ezra and we asked him, now here's a person not only that has a book of the Bible named after him, but here's a person that God used mightily to do something extraordinary that, that links together uh, two giant chunks of redemptive history. I mean, Ezra is a big deal in the story of God, and yet most people don't even know anything about him. And if, you add, if we were to interview Ezra, and we said, Ezra, to what do you attribute your success to? He would have said, no doubt, he would have said that it's due to the good hand of the Lord that's upon me. And the reason we know that is because in this chapter and the following chapter, seven times he says that over and over and over and over. It's clearly what he wants us to know about the reason behind the things that God's allowed him to be a part of. And... You know, whenever you're reading about someone else's great accomplishments, and you're, you're reading about how uh, 
especially tonight. You're going to hear all these things about Ezra and about how God just put him in the right position and how he, he said the right thing and did the right thing and amazing things happened and so on and so forth. Isn't it true that we have this uncanny, almost universal uncanny ability as people to attribute their success, no matter what, whether we're watching uh, somebody on television talking about it or we're reading it in the Bible, we have this uncanny ability to attribute their success to something that we don't possess. Have you ever thought about how we do that? In other words, we start reading some amazing passage of Scripture and we don't say to ourselves, it's unnatural for us to go, oh yeah, I could have done that or I could do that or if I was there when Ezra was there, I could We don't do that. It's much more comfortable for us to just elevate someone like Ezra, put him up on a pedestal, make him different than us in in some significant way and what it does it lets us off the hook doesn't it that's why we do that it lets us read about someone else great doing some other great thing but because of something that we don't possess or some opportunity that we never had or some whatever the case is then we can read about it and be happy for him but at the same time be safe and fine with where we are and what we're doing. And I think we all do that, all of us. And the Bible's constantly fighting against that, going out of its way. God's always going out of his way to try to get us to see ourselves in the pages, in the stories, in the, in the moments that he's recounting in Scripture. So this is what Ezra chapter 7 is going to do. It's going to ask primarily the one question that no one wants to hear. It's not a bad question, but nobody wants to hear this. And it immediately makes us start shifting and dodging. And the question is, how can you change the world? See, if I would have just started tonight by saying, how can you change the world? You would have instantaneously, and probably are already now, your mind, almost supernaturally seemingly, can start just reeling out excuses and reasons. Can't it? I mean, mine can. Just all sorts of things. Because what are you going to say? Well, I can change the world because the very next thing that's going to happen in your mind, you're going to think, well, then why haven't you? Right? Isn't that what's going to happen? Well, yeah. And so none of us is just going to say, I mean, we, we hate this question. There's, we have all these excuses or all these reasons. But what Ezra is going to do is answer the question by shattering every excuse. And this is not unique to Ezra because this happens all over the Scripture. It happened uh, in the text we looked at last Sunday. It'll happen in the text we look at this Sunday. That you, when we, you, you can't even look at the Christmas narrative and not realize God's going completely out of His way 
to use the most ordinary people possible to vanquish every possible reason for us to try to put these people on a pedestal and separate them from us and make like, you know, whatever God did in their life, he could never do in my life, and yet we still do it anyway. It's, it's really an interesting thing to think about. So, let's look at Ezra the man first. So you see in these first opening verses, you got this lineage. And by the way, if any of you is uh, pregnant, expecting, or thinking about having more children, these are some, some biblical boys' names that are still on the table that nobody's used. You know, so if you want Uzi, it's available. If you want Buki, Buki's there. And everyone would just think, you know, is that a nickname? And you go, no, that's biblical. Ezra chapter 7, what are you talking about? In the, in the priestly line of Aaron, right? And we would all enjoy little Buki. Buki wouldn't enjoy little Buki when he grew up. But little Buki, we'd enjoy that for a while. Uh, so I just got cracked up thinking about, you know, somebody coming in the nursery. Zadok, your parents are here, you know. Well, what? Anyway, so clearly this whole, po the point of these opening verses is driving towards Ezra is a, a priest in the priestly line that tracks all the way back to Aaron, Moses' brother, right? So that's important. Why? To to make us, what we do is we think, well, see, look how special Ezra is. That has nothing to do with it. It's all about the bigger picture. It's not about Ezra. So it's because Ezra is a kind of new Moses. That's why. That's why the, the, the Bible wants us to know that he connects back to Aaron. Because if you think about it, just as Moses led the exodus out of Egypt, Ezra leads the exodus out of Babylon. Now, there's a hundred more similarities between the two, but I don't have time to go through them all. But Ezra, what we need to know, is a priest descending from the line of Aaron. Not to make Ezra seem special or out of reach for us or extraordinary in some way just to connect the dots to the narrative of Scripture so that we can see that the God who never changes and whose character is always uh, thoroughly complete and consistent is up to things. And what he's done in the past is pointing to what he's doing now, and what he's doing now is pointing to what he's going to do in the future. All those things work together. So we have this uh, list of his relatives and it just made me start thinking to myself like so we put what if we put my name in there what if we put your name in there you know this is tony son of and son of son of son of son of which i i don't even know after uh two generations you know because it's just not important to me but some of you could could go back this far because you're into all that and you you know swab your mouth and draw out the trees and have all that stuff and you know, yeah. And so that's, that's great. And you could write all this out. But here's, here's the bigger question. Like when you do, when you look at that or when you think about that, 
You know, maybe, maybe, maybe a lot of times you fear your future because your parents failed. Maybe, maybe growing up, all the marriages around you, all the, all the marriages that were modeled for you, they didn't last. And so maybe you, maybe you worry that your life is going to be a, a redo of those who went before you. You know, maybe there was a lot of broken things around you, and that always lingers in the back of your mind whenever things are seemingly, you know, breaking or falling apart. And that's natural. But it's not biblical, is it? It's, see, what we do is a lot of times not what we should do. Because, see, what the Bible says is that, is that all people, all of us, are made in the image and likeness of God. And so what's important is not who your forefathers were. This is the conversation that I always have with people who come to me and say, you know, Pastor Tony, here's the thing, you know, I, I was adopted or this happened or that happened and I, you know, I want to find my biological mom or I want to find my biological dad. And I, I don't really know why they're talking. You know, that's the thing about being a pastor is you just got to talk about everything, which is fine. If it has to do with life, okay. And so we have that conversation. So we talk about it. And here's the thing. There's not, there's not a right or wrong reason. You shouldn't do that or not do that or, you know, but, but I always say, well, why do you want to do that? Because I'm curious. I want to know why. And then I listen. And then I always say, you know, I don't even know where my dad, I don't even know if my dad's alive or dead. I don't know. And people say, well, do you, don't you want to find him? No. Mm -mm, I don't. Well, why not? Here's why, because this is the most significant thing about me, and it's the most significant thing about you. And here's the thing, whatever, whoever I come from is part of me to the degree to which I allow that to affect me. See, some of you have wonderful heritage and lineage, and that's wonderful. And you need to hold on to that and celebrate that and cherish that and so on and so forth. And going from me forward, I, I already see the generations doing that now. So if it's good, wonderful. But if it's bad, that's okay too because the most significant thing about me and you is that we were made to reflect the character of God in this world. Irregardless of who we come from, irregardless of what the track record was before us or how many generations of catastrophe preceded us. So see, the Bible teaches that we were all made to reflect the character of God. Then the Bible also teaches that we all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then the Bible also teaches that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so there's, there is, we all have a past and we have a, a, a lineage behind us, but the degree to which that lineage defines us and controls our future is depends on our response to the reality that 
God made us to reflect his character, but the way, only way to do that is to come to a saving knowledge of his son, Lord Jesus. So, the lineage of Ezra does not put him any closer to God than you or anyone else. The Bible's not telling us all this to make us go, ooh, look how special Ezra is. It's just telling us about him so that we would know. See, the beautiful thing about God is God's not an elitist. He's not a racist. He's not a pragmatist. All of that just means that God doesn't choose the most qualified people. He doesn't use the, the most well-behaved people. He doesn't use the people that everyone else thinks he ought to use. He doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't operate in the way that worldly things operate. He uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That's how he operates. And so he can and will use anyone he wants to use at any time he wants to use them in any way he chooses to use them. He welcomes anyone who would call upon his name. That's the beauty of being in the kingdom of God. All right, so let's look at the return of Ezra, verse 6. So Ezra went up from Babylon. So he's in Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord was upon him. There you go. That's the first of seven times. And there went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. So now we're in the third king since we started in Ezra. Okay, We started with Cyrus, and now we're all the way to Artaxerxes. And so a lot of time has passed. In fact, uh, just shy of 60 years has passed since what Pastor Matt preached last Wednesday to this Wednesday. So these chapters have big spans and chunks of time in between them, which is just for your knowledge. It doesn't really change much about studying what it says. But I want you to notice how uh, the first thing that we see is that he was a skilled, a scribe skilled, skilled in the law. The law of Moses. What does that mean, skilled? Because it's important to understand that. We already look at this principle. Regardless of your lineage and your heritage, you're no further or closer to your purpose in Christ than anyone else. You're the same distance. Every, every child born has the same opportunity. Now, we don't see that, do we? We look at, at, at a child born and we use all of these human metrics and we determine that they have, this child has more of a chance and this child has less of a chance. And this, is that true? Is that true? See, again, just again, that, uh, another illustration if you, if you sit down and start talking to me and, and about a devastating situation where you, your child, for example, is, went totally off the rails, completely AWOL, and is in, in all sorts of trouble and, and doing all sorts of things that dishonor God and, 
and has separated themselves from the family, or maybe they're incarcerated, or maybe they're whatever, and, you know, it's just absolutely devastating and breaking your heart, and it's the end of the world, and, and it, it is unbelievably painful. And so we talk about that, and we cry together, and we pray together. And at the end of that conversation, I'm going to say, but listen, I need you to remember one thing. Your pastor is just like your son. So don't give up hope. You see, it's ridiculous for us to say, sure, if you would have looked at me at 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 15, 16, 17, you, you know, you'd have said, Whew. I mean, I got voted in high school most likely to be incarcerated. Wade actually was, but, you know, I was voted that. You see what I'm saying? But here's the thing. You look at me, you would think, he, he has no chance. Yeah, in a human perspective. So we have to be careful of the lens that we're using to look at things. Got to be careful. So he's skilled in the law of Moses. What does it mean to be skilled? Here's what it means. Not only to know what the Bible says, but to understand what it means. I don't have time because we'd be three hours if I go off the rails on this. But trust me when I tell you, the world is filled with people that know all kinds of information about what the Bible says. And I'm sure that when I get to heaven, they won't be there. When you study the Bible, don't study the Bible to know what it says. Study the Bible to know what it means. There is a huge difference between those two things. And again, I don't have time to go on this tangent, but just all of you that have little kids, all of you that have children over there in that Awana program right now, they can memorize 17,000 verses but it isn't going to mean a thing if they don't know what they mean. Every time you learn a verse, you got to say, what does that mean? What does it mean? All right. Got to move. So that's what skilled means. Skilled is more than just knowledge. All right, so any skill has two factors. The first factor is God's given giftedness. So depending on, you know, in order to be ultra-skilled at something, well, there's got to be some giftedness, right? I mean, I could work no matter how hard I work. I can't be a racehorse jockey. It's never going to happen. Unless they start racing Clydesdales. Then possibly I could do that. So, you know, I, I always, you know, I'm, I always tell my son, Cameron, I always say, you know, there's been tons of people, you know, where he's, he's into basketball right now because of basketball season. He's just into whatever the season is. So he's into basketball because it's basketball season. And I always say, you know, he says, well, Dad, who do you think was the greatest basketball player? I go, what do you mean think? I mean, everyone knows it's Michael Jordan. I mean, what are we talking about here? And then I say, I tell him, I say, but you know what? There's been, who knows, there's probably been thousands and thousands of people born more gifted than Michael Jordan. 
but they maybe never played basketball. But they were, they would, if they would have, they'd have been better than him. He's just the most gifted one that ever applied himself to it. Got it? So the first thing that applies to a skill is, is giftedness, but then the second thing is diligence, diligent effort. Those two things come together, and then that's what... So you can be the most diligent person in the world, but if you don't have giftedness, well, then, you know, you can get proficient at something, but you're never going to be amazing at something without giftedness. But you can be really gifted and really stink because you don't work at it. And we all know of examples of that too, right? So notice, uh, you know... God, there's the God-given, and then there's the, the, the diligent effort given. There's the part he gives, there's the part we give. And I just want you to notice in verse 6 how it says, The law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. See, the law was given. God gave it. That's the given part. Then Ezra took what was given to him, and he diligently applied himself to it, and that's how he became skilled in it. See, there was a lot of Israelites who had all been given the same thing, but they didn't, they didn't devote themselves to it. So those two things have to come together. Let's just talk for a minute about this, the diligent effort part. Well, uh, we are who we are because the Lord gave us our parents. See, that shaped you, whether you like it, don't like it, embrace it, flee from it, whether it was good, whether it was bad, it is what it is. It, it affected you. Who raised you affected you. That's how it, or how you were raised, it affected you. Provided, God provided the opportunities we have had. All the opportunities that I've had in my life, they were all given by God. God gave those opportunities. I didn't make those opportunities happen. They were, God put me in a position. And then I could go left or I could go right. But I made a choice, but God was orchestrating things in just like he's doing in your life. Every day he's bringing opportunities. And then lavish, God's lavished on us every good gift we've ever received, according to the book of James. They all come from the Father above. So all of these things God has, has done and given the Lord raises up, the Lord casts down, the Lord does this, the Lord does that. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4, well, what do you have that you did not receive? Well, you know, nothing. So if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So this means that there's never a reason to boast about ourselves. Because even if we're even if we're boasting about our effort, God gave the opportunity to apply that effort. You understand? You, there's, no, there's no acceptable way for us to boast about ourselves when we understand what the Bible says. And then, nor is there any reason to envy what God has given to others. So what the Bible does is comes along and wants to put us in a position of contentment, always teaching us, like Psalm 139, where the Bible says, uh, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written 
every one of them, what is it? The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Now, and understand, a lot of people read this and think, wait a minute. So God just uh, predetermined and formed out all these days the way that everything was going to be? Well, just hold your horses there. This doesn't mean that God caused every decision that you've made. That's not what that means. It doesn't mean that God caused every decision that you made. It means that you've never made a decision that surprised God or limited his ability to leverage it for your good. That's what it means. But understand, in, the, in every opportunity to make a decision, God's in that opportunity. God's in that circumstance. God, God's hand is what's moving those things, those pieces. And it's important to understand that. Now, this also doesn't in any way relinquish or allow us to deny our responsibility to steward what God has given us. But we always have to remember that this is how I I like to remind myself of this. God is sovereign over everything I see and feel in the mirror. Because, you know, when you look in the mirror, you see things that other people don't see when they look at you. You know that? Yeah, you do. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you see, it's almost like you see into your own soul in a way, right? As you look at yourself, it's a strange thing. I hate looking in the mirror. It's kind of uncomfortable. But now I want you to, so it makes you feel things. God's sovereign over that. He's sovereign over that. That's encouraging to me. That helps me. All right, that's the man. Let's look at the mission. The mission. So verse 6, let me repeat it again. Verse 6, And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord God was on him. So Ezra asked King Artaxerxes for some things, to go and to rebuild the temple in order to be able to do that. And here's what's important for us to understand, is that Ezra actively, was actively seeking the kingdom of God through the political channels open to him as an official in the Persian court. See, Ezra was, had this burden to restore worship and all the things that you learned about last Wednesday night, all the things that we heard last Wednesday night. Well, all of this was a burning desire in his heart, but how was it going to be accomplished well, what he did was he sought, he used the channels that were there. So he goes to the king and he petitions the king for all these things. Now, he's skilled in the law of Moses. So what does that mean? Well, that means a lot of things. That means the Pentateuch, for example, the first five books of the Bible. He's very skilled in those. So then I started thinking, well, if he's skilled in those, then what does he know? Well, first and foremost, he's very familiar with the story of Joseph. So he's very familiar with the way God would have him to operate when there's a political system that's opposed to him. Because he knows how God rose Joseph up, right? And he knows that because he's skilled in that. And so it's almost like he applies what he's learned from the Pentateuch to how he relates to hostile political times and powers. See, here's the principle. It doesn't matter who the king is when the hand of the Lord is upon you. It doesn't matter. 
The fact that it's a Persian king, a wicked king, an evil king, a pagan king, it's pointless information if the hand of God is upon you. See, over and over in the story of Joseph in, in the latter chapters of Genesis, over and over is Joseph's being imprisoned. It says, but God was with him. Joseph being betrayed by his brothers, thrown in a pit to die, left to die, but God was with him. Joseph's forgotten about. Joseph's falsely accused, but God was with him. But God was with him. But God. So it doesn't matter that all these things are going wrong. If God's with you, if God's with you, that trumps the fact that all these things are going on. So Ezra knew the hand of the Lord was upon him. Now, Ezra is a holy priest in an unholy kingdom. I mean, everything about Ezra was the opposite of the environment in which he found himself in. And you would almost think that a person like Ezra committed to being a priest as God had called him to be and being a good and faithful, skilled priest, that he wouldn't even go near the palace or go near any of the the Persian things or any of that because it would defile him. So suppose, just hypothetically, just imagine that you wake up tomorrow with a burning desire, a burning desire in your soul to see all the peoples of the earth worship the God of the Bible. Now you have this brokenness about all the dark places where God's not worshipped. You're just devastated about the places in your work where God's not worshipped and the people in your neighborhood. But even beyond that, uh, the, the country in which you live in and other countries, I mean, you are just broken over that. But you live in this country where everything seems to be going in the opposite direction. So what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? What's the most effective way to change the world around you? And just think of what most Christians do, and that's the top ten list of what you shouldn't do. Should you start a revolution? I know you should get on Facebook. That's what you should do. And start ranting. That's a super great evangelical tool. Everyone's going to want to be like you then. Because, you know, mean and nasty and hateful always draws me close. Would you ever think to yourself, hmm, The greatest opportunity for me to change the world is to devote myself to learning and teaching the Bible. There's there's not even anything close to that. There's not, there's, second is, is infinitely below it. The absolute best way to pursue God's agenda on earth is by making disciples. It wasn't the time of Ezra. It always has been. And it always will be. The Great Commission wasn't some new thing that God dreamed up for the new covenant. It's something He's always been doing. 
you want to see God's kingdom come, then stop pouring all your hopes and your dreams into political reform. This is always good for at least a couple emails. I can burrow up under somebody's last nerve for sure. Huh? Come on. Yeah, was I... Do I participate in the political system? Well, of course I do. Do I care? Of course I do. Am I knowledgeable about what's going on? Of course I am. But if you think I sit home chewing my fingernails, worrying about who's going to win what election or what law is going to pass this or what's going to do that, you, you are way wrong. You are way wrong. Way wrong. Because I know what the Bible says. Victory, listen, victory will not come ever by the right candidate or strategy. Ever. Ever. The Bible says in Psalm 119, 118, You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. See, that's, that's the thing. Just stick to God's statutes. Disconnect yourself from all the other things. Operate in the political realm according to your responsibility as a good citizen. The Bible calls to be good citizens. And utilize that opportunity based on the statutes of God. It's very simple. Just do that. Because any other strategy or cunning or idea or, you know, all the things that, you know, Sitting there all day, getting all worked up, watching it, listening to, you know, and if this happens, that happens, and we can do this, and they can do that, and we can do It's a bunch of cunning. It's all in vain. It's nonsense. They're not in control. They're not. So verse 10 says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. All right. So when it comes to the Bible, here's what the Bible teaches. If you study it correctly, you will obey it. So whenever you encounter someone who, quotation marks, studies the Bible but disobeys it, you immediately know what? They're not studying the Bible. They might be reading it. They might know what it says, but here's what they don't know. They don't know what it means. Because the Bible is so clear about this. Look at Psalm 119, 104. Through your precepts I get understanding. And what's the result of that? I hate every false way. You see? You don't, you don't have to... You don't have to uh, stop trying to get people around you to obey the Bible. What are you doing? Get them to study the Bible. And they'll obey it. Help them understand the Bible. And they'll obey it. That, that's just a natural byproduct. But if you get fixated on behavior modification and you're using the Bible as your 
blueprint, it's just going to be a fiasco. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. You can't obey God's word also without realizing that you have a responsibility for the spiritual welfare of others. See, notice, he devotes his heart to study the law of God, to do it, and to teach others. But I want you to understand, he didn't didn't go, all right, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. All he did was devote himself to be skilled And then the byproduct of that is, see, if you study it, you're going to obey it. And then you're going to, through obedience, because you can't obey Scripture and not realize your necessity and responsibility to teach what you've learned to others. It's just a byproduct. So, again, in the same way it's futile to try to get somebody to obey the Bible, just get them to study the Bible, it's the same thing if, if, you're, if you're trying to get somebody to teach the Bible. I don't want to try to convince someone to teach the Bible because I already know they're not studying it. Does that make sense? Yes. See, if i got to come to you and say, you know, you really ought to be teaching somebody the Bible. That's never going to happen because you shouldn't teach anybody or you'd already be doing that. Now, what happens is I see you, you see people who are already teaching other people and you go to them and say, hey, you know what? There's an opportunity for you to teach more people. But if someone's not teaching, then forget it. All bets are off. They're not studying it. So they got to go back to step one. The most effective thing you can do to change the world is to study the Bible, obey the Bible, and teach the Bible. That is what turns the world upside down, according to Scripture. It's not movements. It's not some genius uh, slogan or momentum or idea or program or none of those things. It's none of those things. Yeah, you can draw a crowd or you can get people's attention or you can get recognition a lot of different ways with a lot of different things, but it's all just going to be fleeting and it's not going to lead to permanent lasting change. There's no greater thing. There is no greater thing. Ezra literally turned the world upside down. He changed the world around him. studying the Word of God, obeying the Word of God, teaching the Word of God. So I want you to see now the means. I didn't have room to put this on your handout or you'd add five pages, and Brian and Matt are already mocking me for the three pages you have now. So uh, clearly I'm the one who's least committed to Uh, recycling and saving paper. I don't know if that's good or bad. It just seems to be the obvious situation. Let me just read this to you in the verses. You can read these when you get home. In 11 and following, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, okay, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra. So Ezra, remember, we already know, 
went to the king, because that's the political structure in which he finds himself in, and he knows that God's sovereign over that. So he goes to the king, and he makes a request to the king. So he's been called to do something. He makes a request to the king. We don't know what that request is. All we know is the king granted it. Now we're about to find out what the request is, and this is amazing. So here's a copy of the letter. Artaxerxes, king of kings, you know, this guy's pretty big on himself. To Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law, of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that every one of the people of Israel, for their priests or Levites in my kingdom, who freely offers to the God of Jerusalem, may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And also to carry the silver and the gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. And all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia... And with the free will offerings of the people and of the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money then you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, lambs. With the grain offerings and with the drink offerings. And you shall offer them on the altar of the house of the God of Jerusalem. Wherever seems good to you and to your brothers to do so. With the rest of the silver and the gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given for you for the service of the house of God, you shall deliver to the God of Jerusalem. I mean, this is just crazy. This is like, this is, this, you know, when I was studying, this is what I thought of. This is when Lisa says to my 10-year-old daughter, honey, why don't you write your Christmas list with no parameters? Who does that to a 10-year-old? So then I come downstairs, and she's like, look, Dad, it's my Christmas list. I'm like, are you insane? Like, you got to prioritize this or something. You know what I mean? Like, there's got to be some, well, that's what I'm, re- I mean, it's just, it's just, un- I mean, here's all the money you need. Buy all you need. Do whatever you want with what's left over. Go wherever you want. Take whoever you want. Build whatever you want. He says, and I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the, listen to this, treasurers in the province beyond the river, where Jerusalem is, wherever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, whatever he requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine. That's a lot of wine. A hundred baths of oil and salt without prescribing how much. Unlimited salt, which was quite a valuable commodity in this time. So basically he said, look, up to the net worth of Elon Musk, give it to him. Wherever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. So now you see, oh, he's got a little motivation in this. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose 
tribute or custom or toll on any one of the priests or Levites or singers or doorkeepers or temple servants or any other servants of the house of the Lord. So they can't in the provinces make all these rules and try to control them or tax them or any of that. And he goes on, and you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand. So, you know, these scrolls that he's, he's skilled in, he's carrying these around. The king knows that. He says, you appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the law of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the, uh, of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. That's what you call in the original language a blank check. That's what that is. That's crazy. So when we read this, we have a tendency to go, and believe me, there's a lot of liberal scholars out there and who, who write books and then sell them as Christian books at christianbook.com or Amazon or whatever, and then unsuspecting people buy them and read them, that teach that Artaxerxes was actually a good king. He was a, a godly king. And it's proven by, look at what he did. What? See, our tendency can be to look at the book of Ezra and to get the impression that Artaxerxes was good, even a godly king. And a lot of people just ride right along that path, right off the cliff. And I, I read all of that because I want to give you three distinct warnings before we close tonight that are very important for you to understand and consider as you put all of this together in application to your life, okay? And the first one is with regards to that principle that we need to beware about being quick to give man credit and God blame. We live in a world that is so ate up with this. And oftentimes, we do it without even thinking. And so what we do is, when something bad is happening... Something uncomfortable is happening. Something is going wrong. We're quick to, as believers even, you know, acknowledge that God is, is actively doing something because I'm hurting, because I'm suffering, because I'm uncomfortable, because this is going on. And God's trying to get my attention about something, and some, you know, which is... None of what I'm saying is untrue. But the problem is, what about all the days that things are going fine? Do you ever acknowledge him in that? See, we have this bad tendency in the church today to remember God in pain and to forget God. In the everyday, normal flow of life. That's a terrible mistake. Be careful. 
Now, I thought about Artaxerxes. Now, I know a lot about Artaxerxes because, I mean, you know, remember last year I preached through the book of Ezra. I've, I've preached through Nehemiah multiple times. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. I know a lot about this king. And I started thinking about all the things that I've learned about this king. And I remembered back in, in Nehemiah chapter 2, when Nehemiah, you know, who's the cupbearer. Now understand, just think about this. He's the cupbearer for this same king that we're talking about, right? He's the cupbearer for this king. Just, just let that hang on you for a second. What does that mean? That means that Nehemiah's job is to taste stuff and drink stuff and not die so the king knows it's not poison so that he can taste it and eat it, right? Which means you're not a great guy if everybody's trying to poison you is all I'm trying to say. If you need a cupbearer, clearly you're not Mr. Rogers. Can we get just, right? All right. So then Nehemiah has a burden because he finds out about the condition of the walls of Jerusalem. And so he's carrying this burden and he's praying about this and it's weighing on him. And he's in the presence of God as the cup of, of the king, Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes says to him in this pivotal moment, remember, I mean, now, now don't forget Esther and all this either. But in that pivotal moment, the king looks at Nehemiah and he says, why is your face sad? And you're not sick. Because he can't be in the presence of the king and be sick. I mean... You get your head chopped off in five seconds for that. Why are you sad? You can't be sad in the presence of Artaxerxes. He says, why are you sad? And, look, and, and Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. Nehemiah 2.2. 2. Why? Because to be unhappy in the presence of Artaxerxes was punishable by death. Remember, before Esther went into the king, she decided that she would go in. But she wouldn't go in until the people of God fasted and prayed for three days. Because she knew the chances of death were so high. This is clearly not a godly king. This is clearly not a good king. But he wrote a blank check. And that's trying to tell us something. So the second warning is we need to beware of thinking that scary things aren't godly things. Listen, so many people today think if it's scary, God's not in it. No, it's the opposite. If it's not scary, then God probably isn't in it. But you see, we're so afraid. We're afraid of everything. There's, listen, there's never been, there's never been, there's never been a weaker, more impotent church in the Western world than there is right now. We're making less of an impact on the world today than we ever have before by a mile. And most people think everything's fine. Most people think, oh, the church is fine. The problem is Congress. The problem is 
the government. The problem is the judges. The problem is this. The problem. And we're weak. We're just afraid. I'm just saying, if you want God to use you, then you're going to have to be willing to run into scary things. Scary. That's where he is, because he's scary. Trust me, he's scary. If you think the angels I was talking about Sunday morning are scary, they're just scary because they're in his presence. Imagine him. So we've got to be careful. Now, back all the way back in verse 6, which is on the first page of your handout. I'll read this to you. It's there. You, you might want to underline it or circle it or commit it to memory or something. But I told you, it says, and the king granted him all that he asked. That's a remarkable statement. So I read this list of this insane blank check. And the Bible says the king granted him all that he asked. Which tells us something about Ezra. Whoa. This cat. He knew how to pray. Audacious. Crazy. Bold. I mean, he went into this scary king. And he didn't say, you know, king. If it would be okay with you, maybe you could, you know, slide me a little bit of lumber and give me a little of this and that. Maybe I could go back. I mean, he went in before the king and he said, he got Kaylee's Christmas list and went. <laughs> and he said, king, here's what I'm asking for. You know, I'm the guy with the scrolls in my hand. So the third warning is beware of thinking audacious things are impossible things. That's a, that's a, those, these are three terrible warnings. No. That's where God lives. He lives in impossible. That's where he moves. That's where he operates. That's why he goes out of his way to show us these things. All right. Let's wrap it up. So then at the end of the, the, the chapter ends this way, verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. You see the understanding that Ezra has about how all this happened? And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage. You know what that means? That means it was scary. He says, I took courage. For the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. Amen. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Man. There's a... There's a message for me and you tonight. So all of this happens. And just realize how it didn't happen 
Because it's just important to understand how it didn't happen as understand how it did happen. It was not through strategy or cunning or espionage or armed revolt or peaceful protest. It wasn't through any of those things, was it? No. I don't know what authority is up against you. I don't know what makes you feel like you're backed in a corner. What, what, I don't know what it is in your realm of life that when I'm talking about how God wants to use you to change the world around you, I don't know what the first thing that comes to your mind that makes you uh, incapable of doing that. I don't know what barrier you see. I don't know if it's your education. I don't know if it's your socioeconomic position. I don't know if it's your family situation. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's your health situation. I don't know, but I know that everybody's got something. But let me tell you about that thing. God's sovereign over whatever that is. He's sovereign over that. And he lives in the impossible. And we just got to be reminded that the king's heart, and you can substitute whatever you think is impossibly controlling your life and circumstance and preventing you from whatever it is you think God maybe could possibly someday maybe use you to do. Well, the king's heart, it's a stream of water in the hand of the Lord who turns it wherever he will. So the fact that Artaxerxes wrote a blank check, a, literally, a blank check, a pagan king, to a Jewish priest, it's nothing for God. But it ought to mean everything for me and you. Something's bad wrong if we can't hear this tonight and not be encouraged. Because no matter who you are, where you are, what you've done, where you come from, whatever the case may be. The greatest thing you can do is commit yourself to studying God's word. And the way you know if you're studying it correctly is because your life is becoming increasingly obedient to the Bible. And if it's not, you need to be discipled in how to study the Bible. Because what you're doing is not working. And if you're walking in a growing obedience to God, then you're aware of the necessity to be teaching that to other people. Everybody, no matter who you are, everybody. That's the kingdom of God. And the great thing is, is that you can do that. Anybody can do that. He's an equal opportunity blesser. Let's pray. Father, thank you for you. Lord, thank you for being the God of Ezra. Thank you for these words we've looked at tonight. Thank you for the, the meaning.